On this week's episode of The Future of Eye Care, I had the privilege to sit down with Dean Butler, founder and CEO of LensCrafters and arguably one of the most influential people globally on the landscape of eye care. Welcome to the show, Dean. Appreciate you joining. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Delighted to be here. Yep, definitely appreciate you joining. Would love for you to kind of give a quick rundown of the background of the companies you've started. You're on the board of multiple companies. I know you've been a founder of multiple companies. Would love for people that don't know you, if that's possible, to, to learn a little bit more about you. Well, I started my business career a long time ago, Bob, before you were born, I'm sure. But uh, I started in Cincinnati, Ohio, as a marketing guy at Procter & Gamble. I spent 14 years in marketing management at Procter & Gamble, and I knew someone whose family was in the optical retail business in Louisiana. And the father who ran the business died, and oh, you know, all these kind of crazy things, and the guy didn't know what to do, and he didn't want to quit his job at Procter & Gamble, uh, but he had to. So he went and he ran this family business because everybody in the family worked in this business. It was a traditional optical retail business in Baton Rouge. And all of a sudden the regulations changed and it became possible for professionals and medicine, the law and so forth to advertise. Before that, you couldn't advertise uh, eyeglasses or optometric services in 48 of the 50 states. You couldn't do it. But there was a Supreme Court judgment that said you can't prohibit people under the First Amendment, it is, from advertising so long as they do so, so truthfully. So he panicked because the one state that was best known in those days for optical marketing was Texas and Texas State Optical. And he says, oh, my goodness, they're going to come storming into Louisiana. What am I going to do? I said, you're going to have to do your own marketing. Will you help me, he says. So I went down and uh, and helped him film some commercials every six months or so, went on TV, and would you believe we took his monthly sales from 30-some thousand dollars a month in three locations to 160-some thousand a month, and that was uh, in the face of Texas State Optical storming into town. So both of us said, wow, you can sell optometric services and eyeglasses through marketing, just like you can sell soap and detergent. And, you know, he didn't like the business. He wasn't an optometrist and he eventually sold it. And it, to him, it was kind of, whew, I'm out of here. But I had said to him, why don't you do the glasses right there in the store? He had taken me to a lab and I knew it didn't take very long to make a good pair of glasses. You could certainly do it in 20, 30 minutes. And he said, well, you can't afford all the equipment. And one day after another couple of years go by, he phones me up and he says, remember how you said we ought to put these machines in the store? I said, yeah. He says, there's a guy in New Jersey's done that. He says, let's go take a look at it. I said, you're not going to get back into the optical industry, are you? Oh, no, no way. But let's go take a look at this. So we go to Paramus, New Jersey on a Saturday. And there's the first eye lab. And they were doing a 48-hour service. And I said to my friend, you know, uh, they're missing the boat from a marketing perspective. 
It should be a while you wait service. Yeah, he says, you know, you're probably right. It should be a while you wait service. Another several weeks go by and I get a phone call. It says, Dean, I've got my architect on the line. Uh-oh. <laughs> he said, if I build a while you wait store, will you do the marketing? And I said, uh, you're going to get back into optics? Well, you know, this sounds like interesting. So he says, I'm going to try it. So we opened a store with my help. I didn't own any of it. The first iMaster store. We opened it in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And the very first day we were open, we sold 21 pair of glasses. And guess what? We calculated that 21 was break even. And we hoped that we might get there after six months. And on the very first day, we were at break even. So then he opened another store in Baton Rouge. And I thought, you know, this really works. Maybe I should do this. So I said to him, I said, you know, will you help me get started? He says, well, I want Texas and Louisiana. He said, I don't want anything else. So I said, okay, I'll take the other 48 states sort of half as a joke. And I quit my job at Procter & Gamble after 14 years and opened Lens Crafters in Cincinnati, Ohio. And you know something, within four years, we were the largest optical retail business in the world. We were Great. doing, in those days, after five years, we were doing $440 million a year in sales. You know what that would be today? In, in, in today's dollars, be about $2 billion. And people think Warby Parker's a big deal after, what have they been around, seven or eight years? And they're not doing $500 million in today's dollars. So we really took the world by storm because we provided consumers with something that was really substantive. You know, glass isn't about an hour. And, you know, we put the lab in the window. Everybody knows what eyeglasses look like. Why are you going to put eyeglasses in the window? <laughs> you don't need to do that. We put the lab in the window and, and it worked. Well, it costs $800,000 open a store. So, you know, we didn't have that enough money to keep storming across the United States. So we sold the business to the United States Shoe Corporation. And I ran it for them on an earnout type basis. And after five years, I had a five-year contract. Uh, I didn't really want to hang around with the U.S. shoe people anymore. So I sold my interest in the business to them and retired for two weeks. <laughs> That's great. I thought, well, wait a minute. I should do this again somewhere. And I thought, well, where do they speak English? Where do people wear eyeglasses? And where are their shopping centers? And where do they have televisions so I can advertise? So we went to England. And guess what? It worked. Within a matter of weeks, we had the number one optical store in all of England. And it was way up north in the middle of nowhere, but in an out-of-town type shopping mall. And just for fun, we did the same thing in Australia at almost exactly the same time. And I eventually wound up personally with 2,200 optical stores in 29 nations. It's amazing. Not not all at once, you know, we sold bits and started new bits and all this sort of things. And I've even had some optical adventures as opposed to optical ventures. The optical adventure was the Soviet Union. 
we went there because I met somebody who wanted us to come there and was influential in their government. And this is before the Soviet Union broke up. But we went there and, and opened a store in St. Petersburg. And you know what? It was the only store we've ever had anywhere in the world where we had to hire guards to keep people out of the store. We had minus 30 degrees outside and we had people waiting in line for three hours to get glasses. It was just crazy. But think about it, a, store, a, company, a, a city with millions of people and we were the only Western style eyeglass store. So it wasn't, you know, think about it, it really wasn't that big a deal what we did. But today that business is now the largest optical retail business in Russia. It's amazing. In addition to the 29 nations I've been in personally, there's another dozen or so where I've uh, consulted or been on boards or whatever, including places like India. Uh, so I've, I've kind of been there, done that when it comes to options. I got to tell you something, Bob, uh, our success over all the years in all these nations depended on optometry. People somehow or another have gotten the crazy notion that I'm anti-optometry. <laughs> that's, uh, that's ridiculous. I mean, I, I'll tell you in a few minutes about some things where I think optometry is going wrong today. And, and you watch out, guys, kind of warning. But if I didn't have good optometrists, I could have never done what I did. Sure. Because it was important for us to do that part right. The thing that many optometrists have always had trouble with is that was not what we emphasized. What we emphasized was a great looking pair of glasses at a reasonable price and fast. That, that is what we emphasized. The vast majority of people who go into an optical store do not go in for a comprehensive eye exam. It's nice that they get one, but that's not why they went there. They need a new pair of glasses. Right. And if, there's not much more to it than that. You don't attract people into most optical stores by talking about fundus cameras and OCT. And I remember in Australia, we had a store that was just doing wonderful business. And it was across the street from across the aisle in a mall from a traditional optometrist. You know what he, we put the lab in the window. You know what he put in his window? The world's largest, ugliest looking fundus photograph. And a sign that said something about, do you know there are silent eye diseases that you don't know you've got? And, oh my goodness. Is that gonna bring customers in? No. Is it good when he finds those things? Of course. Sure. In fact, people used to say, oh, you're commercial, you can risk all this. That's BS. It's BS because when we had hundreds of optical stores, we couldn't afford to have a medical problem. We had to do it right. We had to do it really well. We had to do as good or better a job that, than optometry did in general. We had to really, really get it right. So my success has been heavily dependent on uh, optometry. But I, I got to tell you, I fear for the future of optometry now. I, I really do. And I think what's happened is optometry has veered away from where it really belongs. Optometrists, in my thinking, 
should be focused on the product, the physical product that consumers get and doing a great job of getting them to that point. And that great job includes a really great eye exam, a thorough eye exam, and it includes uh, really knowledgeable people about lenses and so forth to get them into the right pair of glasses. Optometrists have tended, certainly not all, it's not black and white, but optometrists have tended to become more and more medical and less and less knowledgeable about lenses, more and more interested in, uh, you know, the latest medical equipment. In fact, as you, as you know, there are some states now where the title optometrist has been changed. It's, you know, it's now optometric physician. And I've told the people who are doing this, come on guys, the vast majority of your clients, patients, whatever you want to call them, don't want to go see a physician. They just want to buy a pair of glasses. Right. When you call yourself an optometric physician that says I'm expensive. And you know, is that really, really what we want to do? I'm concerned that optometry has moved too far away from what built optometry. And you know, the optometrists that sell eyeglasses, as most of them still do, what is it, 70% of their income comes from the sale of eyeglasses and contact lenses? And that margin's being, I mean, that's something I wanted to talk with you about. That that margin's been getting chipped away at. So one one hand, you can understand why they are trying to move more towards the medical model, because if they just stay within that optical realm, don't you see them potentially just getting eroded away? Not necessarily, it's, it's, it's something yes. for us to talk about. How do they thrive if they were to focus more on optical, get back to kind of that core business, how could they thrive in that sector instead of just survive with all the, you know, online and big box retail kind of chipping away at their at their market share? Well, that's the $64 question, but let me back up and talk about why we got there. Okay. Why are optometrists basically getting ripped off by the insurance companies? And I don't think that's the wrong term, as provocative as it might sound. Uh, optometry has lost control of its own profession. They have allowed the lens people especially, and to some extent the frame manufacturers, to come in in one direction, and the so-called insurance people to come charging in in the other direction. They're the ones that make the money. They reduced the vast majority of American optometrists to technicians doing their work for them so they can sell their lenses and frames. That, that's what they've done. And I blame it on a number of things, but the biggest one is the lack of organization of optometry in the United States. The AOA, if they're listening, I'll tell them what I think of them. They're a toothless tiger. You know, they, they come out every Halloween saying, don't buy these horrible lenses that make your eyes glow in the dark. <laughs> you know, they come out with all these warnings. But what are they doing for optometry? What are they doing to establish standards? What are they doing to allow people who are registered to practice in one state to go to another state? If you've been practicing in Philadelphia or New York or Connecticut and you want to go to Florida to retire and still do some optometry work, Oh, you think you're going to get a license in Florida? 
You think you're going to get one in California? Absolutely not. You got to have some kind of connections to do it because optometry at the state level has become trade unions and they're fighting each other. And the American Optometric Association has done nothing to make things similar across the whole range of states and really support the profession. I think, I think that's a darn shame because optometry does need, I think they, there ought to be a national body. There should not even be state by state registration. I know that's never going to happen, but no, I, I definitely agree with you. That's it's one of the biggest challenges. I think uh, you know you kind of routinely see the academic groups shoot themselves in the in, in their own foot, limiting their own scope of coverage state by state. So you have all these differences state by state. You have differences in their scope of practice, what they can medically bill. So I, I think you are 100% spot on. The best thing for optometry would be if they kind of had a unified body where they could practice, um, you know, universally across all 50 states, they would be on equal footing as, as uh, MDs. Exactly, exactly. MDs are licensed state by state, but you know what? They have real reciprocity. Correct. You can, you can go to another state and you, you get the license. Uh, and some of the state associations are doing some really stupid things. You remember when, what was it, two years ago now, the Kentucky Optometric Association lobbied the state legislature to pass a regulation that said that if, a, if somebody in the state of Kentucky receives telemedicine eye care, that the person who performed that eye care is deemed to have been practicing optometry in the state of Kentucky. And if they're not registered in Kentucky, they're practicing without a license. And that's naughty. In fact, it's illegal. Well, optometry, yay, we got them, right? And a few other states have done the same thing. These foreigners from Pennsylvania, New York, can't come into Kentucky anymore. Uh, but guess what? MD's it's ridiculous. I'll tell, you what, I'll tell you what's happened. They don't, they, it's not publicly known. There were some people providing teleoptometry from out of state into Kentucky and they were, a trap was set up for them, right? Well, the Kentucky Optometric Association has no jurisdiction over those people at all. They only have jurisdiction over people who are registered. So this, so, and they knew this would happen. So they go to the Kentucky State Attorney General and said, there's a bad guy in New York, he's practicing optometry in Kentucky without a license under our new statute. So the state attorney general says, yeah, what do you want me to do about it? Go get him. You want me to have him extradited to Kentucky? <laughs> I can't prosecute him in New York. He hasn't done anything wrong in New York. He's done something wrong in Kentucky. Do you want me to have the state police Stop every car coming into the state and see if we can catch this guy. I mean, come on. You can't enforce it. Right? right? Well, no, the, no way. The other circumvent is that they don't have any jurisdiction over the MDs. So by optometry limiting what their own peers can do, they are then handing over teleoptometry to ophthalmology services. Absolutely. The state of California has already given up on it. 
It's, it's, this is what I'm trying to, I mean, in my new endeavor, I'm, I'm in teleoptometry now and, and, you know, we're, we're launching teleoptometry uh, across the country. We're already in 21 States and there are different limitations in different States. There's only right now, like three real kind of restricted States. Um, but there are some different rulings. The AOA just came out with a guideline and a recommendation on, you know, what is a comprehensive exam, which is good because if you meet that, you know, I, I think that that's, that's good to have at least a standard, but to your point, the, it's the individual states that have to enforce it. So the AOA's guideline doesn't really have any jurisdiction per se, but it is, they're threatening, you know, loss of license to someone who practices in this way in certain states. So I, I think uh, they really need to consolidate and, you know, come to a, a, a consensus with real reciprocity across the country or else there's, there's a company right now that I'm, I'm uh, aware of, which is owned by MDs catering to MDs that is doing teleoptometric services remotely. I mean, they're basically looking at setting up kiosks in airports and uh, you know, that's not good for optometry. Well, it's going to get worse than that. Now I'm going to tell you about what I think is going to get really difficult. Okay. Let me back up and remind everybody of something. If you have a prescription, it tells nothing about, you know, the comprehensive health exam, right? It only tells you what your acuity numbers are. So it doesn't say anything else. That's all your prescription says. Nobody anywhere that I've ever found, and I'm talking in the whole world, has ever refused to fill a prescription that wasn't validly written by somebody qualified to write the prescription. Okay. Example, my wife, my wife is the enemy. She's an ophthalmologist. <laughs> okay. She's, she's an ophthalmic microsurgeon, uh, not practicing now uh, because we're in England where she's not allowed to practice and she's Russian trained. But my wife and I visited a Warby Parker in New York because she wanted to see Warby Parker. So we go in there and would you believe my wife finds a frame she wants in Warby Parker. <laughs> so now I got to be a customer of Warby Parker. That's okay. So uh, she says to the sales associate, you know, I really got to get a new eye exam. And the lady says, uh, well, you know, fine. We'll, We'll, we'll book you to do it, but it'll, it's about two weeks lead time. Oh, my wife says, oh, we're only here for two days. I can't do that. Do you have your prescription with you? Yes, I do. So my wife takes it out of her purse, hands it to this woman, and it's written in Russian. And the lady kind of, it's a big sheet of paper. And the salesperson at Warby Parker kind of goes, whoops, what's this? My wife says, I'll translate it for you. And they sold her a pair of glasses. In other words, you can walk in anywhere that I know of, online, bricks and mortar, wherever, anybody sells glasses. If you have a prescription that the people think was validly written by whoever wrote it, they'll sell you a pair of glasses. So now why, did I, why am I pointing this out? It's because we are literally just around the corner from being able to do an accurate, accurate RX 
online with no equipment at all. It's going to happen. It was developed by an optometry school in the United States that said, oh my God, what have we done? And it was spun out and it's gonna be commercialized soon. You only need a smartphone. You don't need any attachments to the smartphone, nothing. You just look into the smartphone and the R squared is 99.9 .9 to a quarter diopter to the very, very best open field autorefractors on the market. Now you'll say, some people will say, ah, oh, that's an autorefractor exam. All this is a funny autorefractor. Most of the world will prescribe on the basis of autorefractors and the vast majority of people can see just fine with their autorefractor prescription. But you can confirm it with a trial end set, right? That's easy to do and use Jackson cross cylinder. So it's very easy to do. Here's my prediction. We are reaching the point very soon where you can get an accurate acuity check and an accurately written prescription online in a matter of minutes. And you say, well, who's going to sign it? What if I get it signed by a German Augen Optikmeister? And and you get a prescription signed by a highly qualified German Augen Optikmeister. Or an ophthalmologist in Canada. Or in Israel. Or in South Africa or somewhere, right? Is anybody going to refuse to sell you glasses off of that? And if the state of Kentucky gets upset, what are they going to do with the German Augen Optikmeister? Very and you right. know what? You know what? The Veterans Administration has already split the codes for an eye exam from the healthcare part of it and the acuity part. They're different codes. This is the Veterans Administration in the United States. So I think we, and, and all these things happen so slowly. I mean, it takes decades, I know. But over time, I think we're going to have what in Britain, where I live right now, is called a two-tier eye test. How do you like that term? A two-tier eye test. A two-tier eye test, they don't use the term exam, is either get your RX acuity numbers or you get a comprehensive eye exam. It's your choice. In a lot of the world, the point of view is, why would you ever force people to pay for a comprehensive eye exam unless they want one? Is any, if, if it's so important to get a comprehensive eye exam, why don't we force them to go to an MD and get a complete physical so they can get glasses? There are arguments on both sides, but the one argument is when you're charging $100, $120 for an eye exam and people don't think they need a comprehensive eye exam, you're going to keep people from getting new glasses when they ought to have them. This is where optometry lost the marketing message that dentist won, right? You got it. Absolutely right. Yeah. I, so I want to I want to transition over to to some other stuff because you're you're involved in so much stuff. So you know you're you're on the board of multiple different companies. Um, anything that you're 
doing right now that's that's brand new i mean i i know that you're involved in some teleoptometry stuff which is where where we just spent some time talking about anything else that you you're kind of like early phase looking at that you think is potential you know future whether it's outside of uh, optics or if it's in ophthalmology or, or any other area well I think that if I were an optometrist today, I would go in one of two directions. The first one's easy. And it's exactly what you predict, I would say. Go back to what's worked for decades and decades and be the best daggone eyeglass purveyor in your area and use real marketing to make it work. And guess what? Don't hire people with an optical background. I'll tell you a rule of thumb that's right. It's really correct. And boy, a lot of optometrists get upset when I say this, but you need good salespeople out front. You need real salespeople. What you're, what I'm going to tell you now is absolutely right. You can teach optics to a great salesperson, but you cannot teach sales to an old fashioned optician. Doesn't work. I can put a good person out front in any optical store anywhere in the United States and within six months, I'll double their sales. and I don't change anybody else in the place. So that's one direction to go. The other direction is to go not in the direction that I would term medical optometry, but to provide really special optometric services. The two that are most obvious, well, there's really three, but I think the easiest one is neuro lenses. Because they really work. And the world's try finally figuring out they really work. They're solving a lot of uh, problems that uh, seem to be related to, uh, you know, using computer screens and so forth. Another one is myopia control. Sure. Specializing in myopia control. That works. Go look, talk to the treehouse guys. Yeah. They're doing a great job of it. Yeah, Gary Gerber with uh, with the with Treehouse, absolutely. Yes, and, and Matt Ording, they're doing a they're doing a wonderful job, and they're making a lot of people really happy. Just like Neuralens makes a lot of people really happy. I got to tell you a quick Neuralens story. Uh, I went to one of the Southern California uh, practices that's doing Neuralenses with my ophthalmologist wife, and we videoed a few real customers. And this one woman says to me, you know, I've had all these headaches all my life for 18 years. I couldn't hold a job and I had to stay in a dark room. And I went to the neurologist and I went to this person and that person and got Botox. Nothing worked. Somebody told me about this Neuralens thing. I thought, well, I'll give anything a try. So I went in there and ordered some glasses. I said, you're a great candidate. Came back on a Saturday when they said they were ready. The place was busy. And the lady said, she said, I had a splitting migraine headache when I walked in there. And the lady said, here's your glasses. Why don't you just sit right here, give them a try, and I'll be with you in five minutes. She says, I put them on and my headache disappeared instantly. I said, what? what huh? I said, you can't be serious. She says, no, it really happened. She says, my headache went away. Anyway, that night we interviewed seven people, you know, three of them said the same thing. And when we left and we're driving home in the car to have my ophthalmologist wife with me, she says, what are you going to do with that video? And I said, well, you know, probably use it for marketing and, you know, showing uh, potential uh, candidates for, for using our equipment. She says, you can't use that. And I said, why? She says, nobody will believe it. 
<laughs> then she gets on the phone with her ophthalmologist friends in Russia. And after a while she comes back, she says, you know, I believe it. We think we know why it works. But that's one direction. I said myopia control is another direction. Dry eye is a, is, is a good direction. There's a lot sure. of practitioners out there doing a great job with dry eye. But the basic practice should be based on giving the consumer what they want. That is a really good pair of glasses with the right lenses for them. Not the cheapest. Not the cheapest at all. By the way, I have a friend in Seattle that's got three eyeglass stores in Seattle. His average sale is $1,170-some dollars. That's great. Because he carries great stuff, right? And he has a lot of really, really satisfied customers. So that's the kind of thing I would do. Whatever you do, don't try to be the cheapest. Just provide really great service. And do what we've always tried to do in my businesses. I've always said that our main job is to create enthusiastically satisfied customers all the time. Do whatever you have to do to create that enthusiasm. And we figured in my businesses that if you did that well, that the average life of a customer was at least 12 years. You've got them and you've got their family. And by the way, let me, let me mention one other thing since you have some optometrists who are going to listen to this. Don't try and sell people a year's supply of contact lenses. If you go out and do any research, they hate that. And they hate one-year prescriptions. And that's why about 40% of all the potential contact, the replacement contact lens business from a private practice optometrist is lost. And it's, it's, it's because people think they're getting ripped off. And I'll, I'll tell you what to do. And I've told a couple of optometrists this, and they've come back and say, my God, it works. If you've got a customer who is uh, in that age range of most contact lens wearers, which is what, 18 to 35 or something like that, mostly women, that's about 70% of the industry. Before their one-year lens prescription is about to expire, send them a note, an email, letter, phone call, whatever, and say, you know, you're so young and you have such a basic prescription that I don't think you, you might not need a new eye exam. I, let, let, me, let me have the doctor call you and ask you a few questions and for, I'll make this up, $20 will renew your old prescription for another year online. And pe- people have said, God, that really worked. <laughs> and you retain these people. And that was perhaps a customer who's going to go somewhere else, who was going to order an, a, a one-year supply from 1-800-CONTACTS the day before the prescription expired, right? Sure. That's how you retain patients. And I'll tell you another thing that some guys have done that I've suggested over here. Over here, there's been this big deal about don't you ever give a patient a PD for eyeglasses, right? Because <laughs> they're going to go buy their glasses online. Put a sign in the window that says, ordering glasses online, free PD checks here. Get people to come in, give them their PD for free. Guess what? You'll, make, you, you, you'll wind up with a new patient. 
Sure. You know, you look at the cost of of a new patient acquisition from you know just you start looking at pure marketing metrics. How much does it cost to acquire that new patient? And if you add up the number of free PDs you had to give out in order to acquire just one person, and what's the what's the value make per patient? It becomes yeah. like one of the most effective forms of advertising you could do. Free signage, whatever your time's worth to measure the PD, or or actually your 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 technician's time to measure the PD, and you get one patient per however many. It's a no-brainer. You know what? The cost is zero because there's no incremental cost to you. Correct. Right. You're already paying that technician. Compared to compared to if you're paying, you know, five hundred dollars to run an ad in, you know, your local newspaper or gazette, whatever it is. Uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you hundred percent. Dean, I have I have a couple of questions I wanted to really ask you because your 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 marketing experience, you know, what one of uh, the memories I have the best launching, you know, Norlands with you. We were at our first trade show. I remember you came over to the booth and we were, you spent like an hour in the booth and we just talked about marketing. And I remember I, I called my wife later that night and I said, you know, the reason I joined this company was just realized because I got to spend like an hour with Dean talking straight business. And like, that was the reason, you know, I kind of took the risk to, to join a startup. And, uh, and so, you know, I always appreciated your, your knowledge of the industry. And I think you and I were always violently in agreement on, uh, on kind of the state of optometry and how to kind of market our business there. So on that front, I kind of want to pump you for some information for you're, you're familiar with the type of teleoptometry services that my company's providing now. What do you think the main reason is optometry is so resistant to everything that's new? I've launched three medical device companies here in the past. Each of them has been the world is ending until... 10 years later, and it's accepted as like kind of like the new standard of care, right? Why do you think, A, they are so resistant to change of something that even could dramatically help them? And then B, how would you go about marketing this to optometry as, as a service that could help them expand their practice expand their exam hours without them having to be present. I mean, you're a business owner. You've, you're, you're, you're past a business owner in Robert Kiyosaki's book. You're an investor at this point, but I mean, you have built businesses that operated without your presence and you well, would, let me, optometrists would want to do that. So I'm curious as to your take. Well, let me, let me uh, answer that by coming up with a series of answers. Okay. First and foremost, when it comes to marketing, Remember that we are selling a product in which there is no inherent interest. Consumers don't go, wow. <laughs> you know, if there was a, a, a rock star was coming to town, the tickets were going on sale, they'd be sold out in five minutes, right? Because that's a wow. Eyeglasses don't fit that. And what works in selling eyeglasses is exactly what worked in my alma mater, Procter & Gamble, selling laundry detergent, toilet tissue, toothpaste, all these products in which there's no inherent interest. And that'd be a whole nother three or four hours to tell you how you do that. But it's actually pretty straightforward once you understand that what you have to do is give the potential consumer a provocative and substantive reason to believe and then convince them you can pull it off. And I'll just tell you real quick, what, how do we do that at Lens Crafters? Glasses in about an hour. That was a great line. It was a great marketing line. But then 
that wasn't going to work by itself because most people didn't believe it. So we use real people testimonials done in the stores where people said, I really did get my glasses an hour. Went and got a cup of coffee, came back, my glasses were ready. And we put the lab in the window, right? And then we write, now here's what really worked. This is the secret. When we wrapped up the TV commercials, we said, come watch us make your glasses in about an hour. Ooh, you mean I can watch them make my glasses? Maybe they really can do it. Well, nobody stood there and watched the whole process, but it brought people in. You know, within two months, we were selling over 100 pair of glasses on a Saturday. I mean, who would, who would have ever thought you could do that? In, 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 in Russia, in that store where people were lined up, guess how many pair of glasses we were selling a week? We were open all kinds of long hours, 1,500 pair a week. Amazing. So the, these things can be done. But how, how would I market myself today as an optometrist? First of all, look, you got to first of all know who is your target audience? Is it the little old ladies? Is it the teenagers? Is it the people with headaches? Is it the grandparents who are afraid of the myopia problems that their grandchildren are gonna have? Who is the target audience? Then find a substantive and provocative thing that you wanna say you can deliver and then convince them you can pull it off. And nothing works better than testimonials. Yeah, I nothing. Agree. And it's really pretty straightforward. But please, I say to my optometrist friends, don't get tangled up in saying, I provide the best comprehensive eye exam in town. Is that credible? No. First of all, let me tell you one other thing. Whatever your marketing does, that only gets people to walk in the door. You haven't done the job yet. That gets them to walk in the door. Well, that's a big achievement, yes. But you haven't finished the job until they have a great experience and you know they're going to come back. And this is the enthusiastically satisfied customer all the time. Sure. So, so what do you think about our, our businesses launching to these doctors? You know, it's interesting. We're selling eye exams, which aren't necessarily attractive. You don't want to say we're the best or we're as good as your exam, right? Because we're doing a comprehensive exam remotely. So what, what do you think? Where, where do you think well, you would? That's easy. Yeah. Bob, Bob, that's easy because we know that about 65% of consumers who buy eyeglasses want to shop during the hours traditional optometrists are not there. I mean, how many optometrists want to work all day Saturday and Friday evening and, and Sunday? Not, not very many that I know, except a few that are desperate to pay their school, <laughs> their school expenses off, right? And they only do it because they have to. I think that if a, if a, if what I'll call a traditional private practice optometrist 
were to work with you guys and be open without them being there all day Saturday, probably Saturday, Sunday afternoons, a couple evenings a week, I think they could easily add 50% to their revenue. Yeah, I'd say 40 to 50%, I think, is based off of some of our case studies. That's I have no number. doubt about that. It's yeah, absolutely I mean, credible. And try, well, yeah, so trying to make it credible to them, it's credible to you and I who understand the numbers, <laughs> trying to make it credible to somebody who's emotionally attached and not letting go of their refraction, not letting go of their comprehensive exam. I mean, that is oh, the challenge, you know? Oh, wait a minute, Bob, wait a minute. I can ask you a question now. Can I ask you a question? Of course you can ask me a question. <laughs> How many optometrists enjoy doing refractions? Well, if you read ODs on Facebook, all you see are the list of people who complain about which is better one or two. Some of my marketing was going to be like, you know, let go of the refraction, you know, like, right. Kind of, like, why would you want to keep holding on to the refraction? Like, you know, you got it. Imagine the possibilities of not having to say one or two anymore. That was one it. of the lines I was going to, I was going to put out there on in some of our marketing, but yeah, I'm, 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 I'm in a violent agreement with you with, with, you know, what, once again, Dean, you know, we are, I think, uh, I always appreciated your insight into the market. Um, I see behind you a never ending bookshelf, which is no surprise to see someone as successful you has had. Uh, it has a full library. I'm sure that probably wraps around the room. And um, it's, it's just always a pleasure talking with you because you're just so knowledgeable, the industry. I look forward to, to seeing you at, at the next show when we're, we're able to get together again in person. And uh, well, any time I look forward to seeing you too. And if uh, your audience is interested in, in any more stuff and they're not going to see they can't throw rotten tomatoes at me through the TV, through the screen here so <laughs> or, or or me either actually yeah no so yeah. I, I i appreciate your time and uh it's been a real pleasure i know it's i know it's late over so it's 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 uh, almost 9 p.m out there in england is that correct yes 10 minutes to nine but that's uh that's early for me because i tend to do business in the evening because I'm communicating with California a lot. And that's an eight hour time difference. Sure. I appreciate but, you taking the time out of your busy day and your schedule to, to, to make some time for me and, and, and the show and, and just to talk about your experience in the industry. So it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks right. for the opportunity. Sure. Have a great night. Bye.